Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Invisible War, we're going to turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The History of the Warfare. Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I suppose you'd have to imagine what it must have been like for lions to be wandering about. I understand that when a lion gets a taste for human flesh, they become very dangerous indeed. There's one very famous account that comes from Rhodesia, or what we now call Zimbabwe, in the year 1909. The lion was named Charlie, and he eventually teamed up with two other male lions, and they began to feed upon the people of a number of villages, and together they ate over 90 villagers. You know, there's another story that comes from Tanzania more recently. In 2002 to 2004, a lion who was named Osama killed and ate some 50 people. Indeed, people who live in areas threatened by lions will say that lions have been known to enter villages and simply attack people and eat them at will. If weapons to stop them are not at hand, the experience is altogether terrifying. And furthermore, the lions can be incredibly smart and they outwit traps and other instruments of capture. And so Peter says, that's how the devil prowls among the human race. He enters villages and cities and whole civilizations, destroying to great effect. And Jesus said, and it's recorded in John 8, 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So today I want to trace the history of the warfare of Satan and the demons throughout the history of redemption. And I'll trace that history through three stages. Stage one is the stage of the fall of the human race. Stage two is the period of the First Testament, and stage three are the changes in the battlefield after Christ. So let's begin with the stage that led to the fall. And as we know, God had created the first human pair and had placed one tree in the garden among all the other wonderful trees, but of this tree they were commanded not to eat. And by a simple reading of that text, we would assume that they would have kept that command had it not been for the serpent. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Now this strange statement that a serpent who is among the creatures speaks to Eve and deceives her, well, that's led more liberal Bible teachers to state that, you know, it's a bit of a stretch to equate that serpent with Satan. But that's exactly what the rest of the Bible teaches. Paul simply assumes it. So listen to his words in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 4. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, notice in this text, Paul is saying that a different spirit that leads to a different gospel is the same deception that deceived Eve. Paul's referring to the serpent. The same one that deceived Eve is threatening to deceive you, he says to the Corinthian Christians. And there's no doubt that John agreed with Paul on that interpretation. 
In Revelation 12, verse 9, he writes, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So clearly, from the perspective of the divinely inspired writers of Scripture, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is Satan himself. But how is it that, as we have seen, angels often appear in human form, but here, this fallen angel appears in the form of a serpent? Well, we're not told, although at this juncture, the astute Bible reader will immediately see the relationship between the first human pair and the serpent. You know, you need to go back to Genesis 1.26. The very nature of human authority is clearly stated there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So when Satan is permitted to enter the innocence of the garden, See, I note that God permitted him to enter as a serpent. And in that form, Satan had to endure the indignity of coming as a creature who is under the authority of the first human pair. The mandate has been given. They are free to command the serpent, and he must obey. But, says Paul, Eve was deceived by the cunning of the serpent, and she was led astray. She, she was tricked. Well, how so? Well, she's deceived by two statements the serpent makes. The first is by questioning the commands of God. Did God really say, he asks? Well, perhaps you misunderstood, and Eve is led to doubt her own ears. Furthermore, it's not true that you will die. God has misled you. Should you really trust him? What if he is untrustworthy? And so the woman moves from faith, that is, trust in the goodness of God, to doubt, to unbelief. Perhaps God has deceived her. Then the second statement, God knows that when you eat, you will become a God in your own right, equal to your creator. Wouldn't it be better to be a God rather than accountable to God? And so rather than accepting her position as an image bearer of God who is created to rule his creation under his authority, she reaches out to become a god in her own right. And Bible teachers have rightly pointed out that the original sin of our first parents is pride and unbelief, the opposite of faith and humility. But what must also be pointed out is that these two attitudes didn't arise from within the human race. Rather, it came from Satan himself. This is a logic whose origin comes from the demonic realm. We were deceived, we were tricked. And when I say that, I don't mean to imply that we aren't accountable. Of course we're accountable, and we are guilty of rebelling against the altogether good God. So what do I mean? Well, for example, if you followed Adolf Hitler, well, it was not your idea to exterminate the Jews, but you're fully accountable for that decision because you're accountable for whom you follow. And therefore, you're guilty of the sins that come from the free choice that you made to follow a monster. Who you follow is a moral choice. But it's also true that you would have never joined in attempting to exterminate Jews if that madman had not led you in this way. And so his sin, that is Hitler's sin, is a deeper and darker sin than the sin of those who followed. For evil originated in his mind. Well, the Bible never states it, and so 
What I'm about to say is my personal theory, and it's probably no more than that, but I have a thought that the reason Satan and the demons can't be forgiven and the reason why fallen human beings are offered forgiveness is exactly on this point. Original sin originates from demons and not from us. We followed in sin, but the sin itself originated in a source outside of ourselves. We were deceived. But once paradise was lost, a new era dawned on the human race. God had promised that death would follow sin, and so it did. And Satan knew that. He was completely cognizant that death would follow his deception, and he had no concern for Eve. He wanted both her and her offspring to die. And so following one act of sin, death ruled over the human race. And that's because the human race was transferred from the realm of light to the realm of darkness. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, speaking of the warfare which believers wage, Paul writes of the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And that's an apt description of our age. And in Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul says that the entire human race, now in this present darkness, follows the prince of the power of the air. He means that the human race now has a dark Lord. And John said the same. 1 John 5 verse 19, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Revelation 12 9 calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 4 4 calls Satan the god of this world. And you might remember that Satan, when he tempted Jesus, said, the kingdoms of this world have been delivered to me. In refusing his temptation, Jesus never argued over that claim. And so after the fall, Satan became the god of this world. He majors in things like death, lies, deception, slander, mistrust of the true living God, false accusation, sensuality, idolatry, the list goes on and on. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 speaks of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. All of this leads us to believe that ever since the fall, Satan and the demons have been promoting and nurturing a global culture based on greed and lies and murder and the constant accusation and slander of others. They encourage idolatry and every form of false religion. Paul is right to call it this present darkness. And yet God is in control. There's so much more to learn. Do you have young adults in your life? Or perhaps you are a young adult and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith. Then be sure to check out In Doubt, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, In Doubt engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance in dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads, relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out or pass along the information to the young adults in your life. Just visit indoubt.ca, download the Indoubt podcast wherever you typically listen, or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information. We need to map out the history of the warfare in which we are engaged. 
The first stage is our fall in which we, as human beings, have surrendered our mastery of this earth to dark spiritual beings. And these spiritual beings work hard to create a series of cultures on this earth in which lies and death become a part of the human fabric, and so death stalks the land. The second stage is to trace the development of that theme through the First Testament or up until the time of the coming of Jesus. And we have, throughout this study, already noted that Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, acknowledges that the gods to which the nations around Israel sacrificed were demonic beings. Psalm 106, verses 34 to 37, probably summarizes this struggle about as concisely as any passage we find in the First Testament. It says of Israel, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And so the First Testament, although it talks very little about demons, does acknowledge that all idolatry and all the atrocities that follow, even up to sacrificing one's own children on the altar, well, that is the work of demons. And from that, we have to infer that the continual warfare in which Israel was engaged is a war against the demonic. Now, they were unable to cast out the demons, but if they obeyed the law of the Lord, they could hold the demons at bay. Now, contrast that reality with Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verse 12, and there Paul says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, and yet, in the First Testament, the struggle was almost entirely with flesh and blood. And the reason for that difference is that the First Testament, there is no way to fight the demons other than fighting those cultures that are being controlled by the demons. But all of that was about to change with the coming of Jesus. It is important to note that even while Jesus acknowledged that Satan was the god of this world, and yet we see him determined to destroy that reality. And the first act is the ease in which he cast out demons. And should you wonder why there were so many demons in Israel, the answer has everything to do with what Psalm 106 taught us. Israel, as the psalm says, did not destroy the nations around them, but they they intermingled with them. They acquiesced, and in so doing, Israel became filled with idols, and the demonic was deeply felt within that culture. And that tells me that not every nation is as deeply influenced by demons as the others but a repeated pattern of rebellion to the living God will result in ever-increasing darkness until the evil spirits rule the land with sensuality and lies and loving that which is false and ultimately with death itself. That's why we need to pray for our culture. But then came Jesus and he was able to do what no one before him had ever done. Yeah, there were Jewish exorcists, but they most certainly were very ineffective. Not so with Jesus. With a simple word, the demons fled from his presence. Clearly, as Jesus said, a strong man had entered their house and was throwing them out. Matthew 12, 28 to 29 has Jesus speaking. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so a war is engaged. Please see Jesus' struggle with the Pharisees as so much more than with a theological struggle. John 8, 43 to 44 records Jesus telling the Pharisees, Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Those aren't just harsh statements. They're true statements. These theologians had learned their doctrines in the same place Eve did when she rebelled against God. But in the midst of this comes Jesus' promise. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is to say, the church I come to build will drag men and women and boys and girls from Satan's kingdom, and Satan won't be able to stop that. But how does Christ do that? And a part of the answer is found in the cross. Let me take you to a text in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. It says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, I have in the past studied that passage at length, and I'm quite sure that the war spoken of here is not the first rebellion of the demons against God. See, this warfare in Revelation is a warfare that happened during the ministry of Jesus. Jesus coming to earth and casting out demons and preaching of the kingdom of heaven and promising to build a church that would pillage Satan's kingdom resulted in a great warfare in heaven. Indeed, let me also at this time quote Colossians 2 verse 15. He, that is, God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Jesus the Son, by his death on the cross. That is to say, when Jesus died, Satan and the demons suffered a critical and a crucial defeat. And if I am right on the Revelation passage, and I'm quite sure I am, then the coming of Jesus into this world created a great warfare in heaven a warfare that culminated when Jesus hung on the cross. And I'm quite sure that Satan knew good and well that the cross represented his defeat. He didn't think that he was winning during the crucifixion and that he had found he had been hoodwinked when the resurrection occurred. See, the reason the religious teachers mocked Jesus on the cross and taunted him to come down from the cross and demonstrate that he was the Son of God was because by now, Satan knew that if Jesus died on that cross, that he would suffer the most humiliating defeat he had ever suffered. Well, how so? Look again at Revelation 12. It says that the result of a great warfare in heaven is that the dragon was thrown down. And then in the very next verse, in verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. See, up until the cross, according to Job 1 verse 6 and other passages, Satan has been appearing regularly before the throne to accuse God's servants. They're hypocrites, says Satan. Look at their sins. And Satan is rightfully called the accuser of the brethren. But when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was forever banished as the accuser of the brethren. Well, how so? That's because ever since the death of Christ our Savior, 
Jesus' blood testifies in our defense. Who is it, asks Paul, that can now condemn? No one. For our condemnation was borne by our Savior, and the mouth of our accuser has been forever silenced before the throne of God. The blood of Jesus is good blood. It forever not only testifies in our defense, but it forever condemns the one who stood to accuse us. Hear me now. The condemnation for your sin has been borne by your Savior. Your accuser has been thrown down, and so his daily accusatory voice has now been drowned out by the blood of your Savior, the blood that speaks with a louder voice than the voice of the accuser. And so the accuser is humiliated. He who once tried to entice our Savior to come down from that cross has utterly failed. The one who now commands demons to flee stalks through the land. The church of the Savior is right now still being built by Jesus. It's being built among the nations in the heart of the satanic kingdoms, right in the center of idolatry. And now Satan, the humiliated one, can't stop the daily event of ever more of his captives being dragged from his dark kingdom and being delivered into the kingdom of the Son of God. And it is for that reason that a humiliated Satan now rages seeking someone to devour. He seeks to have the servants of Jesus put to death. And when he can't accuse us before the throne, he seeks to entice other Christians to accuse one another so that he might accuse us before the world. And so the war rages on, but the battlefield has radically changed. The one stronghold of the evil one appears less stable than ever before, and it is beginning to crumble. But a humiliated and a wounded foe is a dangerous foe. Yes, says Peter, he is now a roaring lion, a fierce man-eater seeking someone to devour. John, I think, you know, the, the issue of demons and Satan can become pretty overwhelming, but I think as we come to the conclusion of this week, I think it's important to talk about the fact that we need not fear Satan. Yeah, it's so important to recognize that he has suffered a great defeat. And even though he rages against us, we are in Christ. Christ is the great victor. And uh, that sure knowledge uh, gives us confidence rather than fear. Now, we're going to say a lot more about the warfare in week two, but at this juncture, let's revel in the victory of Christ rather than quake in fear. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for this week. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. On November 14th, Dr. Neufeld will begin a new series that you won't want to miss, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. It's a 20-message series on Matthew 21 to 25. There's a lot to unpack in these five chapters, and Dr. John's biblical expertise will shed light on these passages to help you understand them in a new and deeper way. This series begins with an overview of the qualities that are unique about the Gospel of Matthew and continues with a deep dive into the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life where he will fulfill the mission he'd been sent by the Father to accomplish. So mark your calendars for November 14th. 
and check out this series on your local radio station, your preferred podcast platform, or at backtothebible.ca. And for more information, just call us at 1-800-663-2425.